Let's turn the mic on. Good morning. So did we all like our month on family last month? It was good. Very good. Crib theory, very interesting. Okay. Well, this month, we are doing conflict, which is always a fun one. Let's see here. So last month, we learned a whole lot about the nature of family and how God views family and all of those things. Family and conflict, as you probably know, are not real big strangers of one another. Um, in fact, in Scripture, the first recorded conflicts are within the family, right? And we get to see that within the family dynamic. Their conflicts that we see recorded are a lot more harsh, hopefully, than some of the conflicts in our family. But <clears throat> this is where it comes from, um, and it's where we're vulnerable, right? We tend to, within those safe structures, within those family structures, we tend to let our guard down and let conflict really take hold in ways where we wouldn't necessarily let that happen <clears throat> with other people um, that we are not as safe with, let's say. So, in these conflicts, we reveal where we're really coming from a lot of times, you know, where our heart is at. And that's something, as believers, as people called to continually look at Christ's standard and look at ourselves and see how we match up to that. That's something that we find valuable. That's something that we can look at. So we're going to start there today looking at this first conflict within the sort of family structure and see what we can learn from that. Conflict with people, even family, family or not family, but conflict with people and God are closely intertwined also. You know, and we see that in the beginning being even hard to distinguish, but once we separated, we'll see that those conflicts can be, like, they seem to be more separate once man goes one way and God goes another way and so on and so forth. But we're going to explore all those things and check some of that out and see what we can learn from that. After all, the nature of sin, right, we know is, even when we do sin against other people, we're sinning against God first, right? We see that in a bunch of different examples in Scripture, but like one of them is David when he um, has Bathsheba's husband murdered so that he can have her as his wife, like a really bad situation. And he recognized that, and um, when he's called out on it, he's super distraught about it. But he says that, David says that he sinned against God. He sinned against God first. These things are meshed together in a way that um, can't really be separated. But we're going to check this out. Also, Joseph and Potiphar and his wife is another situation where Joseph refuses to, to you know, get with a certain lady or whatever. And he says that he couldn't never do that because of the sin against God. And then you have things like Ananias and Sapphira when they lie. They lie to the other believers about how much they are donating to the church or whatever, and they say that not that they lied just to the believers, but that they lied to God too. So sin against man, sin against God, conflict 
against man, conflict against God. These things are intimately intertwined. And so we need to recognize that as we move forward and try to figure out exactly where those things started and where they separated along the way and why we have those things um, not tied together necessarily in our minds still. I also want to just take a second to recognize that conflict can be both positive and negative, right? It's like the word consequence. Like everybody thinks, oh, it's a consequence. That's a bad thing. Not necessarily a bad thing. And we're going to spend some time later on in the month talking about positive conflict and how we want to seek to use conflict um, for the benefit of everybody, for the glory of God, so on and so forth. But right now we're going to focus on conflict in the negative side of things. So in our world, we see a lot of different ideas of conflict, right? We see um, people with all sorts of ideas of what it should like, the world's idea of conflict. We see it as being avoidance, right? Like our, an idea of how to approach conflict, what to do with it, I guess. You see people being like, we should avoid conflict at all costs. That's the best way to deal with conflict. We have people that want to dominate, you know, that they can stand up and say with a clear conscience or whatever that you should try to win everything because that's what you do. Like, you're supposed to win. It's America. Like, this is capitalism. That's what we do here. Glorifying and winning physical and verbal fights, monetary fights, like, whatever the fight is, your job is to win it because you have to protect yourself. You have to protect your family. You have to provide for those people, whatever. You see um, social contract ideas of conflict, right? Like we talked about last month, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And so in conflict, we're supposed to um, find a compromise so that everybody's happy. Uh, peaceful separation. We want to address conflict in a way where people can part their ways and no harm, no foul. You know, as long as it's peaceful and you can move on without having a real fight. Um, or maybe a contained conflict. Conflict is fine as long as it doesn't spread outward and affect others. Maybe, like, keep it within the family, you know, like we've talked about last month. Or um, maybe you're having a hard time at home, you know, and that's fine as long as you don't bring it to work or whatever the situation be. Um, or conflict in terms of revenge, you know. Some people view that as a positive. It's justice. It's seeking justice. So some of those things might have seemed, you know, bad. Some of them might have seemed better than others. Some of them maybe you're like, yeah, that's what I like. That sounds like a good conflict. That sounds like a good way to deal with conflict. But really, none of these are from God. None of these have the full picture. None of them are healthy. And we want to check that out this month. So the types of conflict that people experience are not simply within human nature, but the types of conflict that we experience today were inserted at a time in the past and accepted into our lives a long, long time ago, both in our lives and in the history of the human race, and should be recognized as what they are. These alternative, ungodly types of conflict should be recognized as foreign and having a particular signature by which we can identify these types of conflict. So they have a particular character to a particular attribute or a personality to them. So as we seek to do that, let's go back to the genesis of conflict in Genesis, no surprise. 
chapter 3. Um, we're going to read verse 1 through 7. Um, this is after, just after, you know, creation, and man and woman are doing their thing in the Garden of Eden, and they're being good little humans, and then here we go. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit in the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the, ser the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness, so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. This is our first real glimpse at conflict in Scripture. God had one rule, right? Don't eat the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden. And... Adam and Eve, they decided that they wanted to have a lack of submission. They didn't want to follow God's direction in that. Um, but also, the serpent, Satan, right, he skewed the truth of it. In verse 1, he says, <clears throat> oh, it's not, it's uh, whatever. I think it's verse 3. Uh, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? That's not what was said, right? It was, don't eat the fruit from the one tree in the middle of the garden, that specific tree. Everything else is fair game. But even from then, he's trying to skew the truth of what God presents, right? And then in verse 4, he says, you won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. And you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Again, taking what God said, and putting a spin on it, being like, yeah, are you really going to believe this guy? You know, what's your experience tell you? What do you think? Satan, in this circumstance, facilitated our conflict with God. He's known as the deceiver, after all, right? That's one of his many uh, aliases that he goes by. And at that point, mankind decided to pick the wrong side of the conflict, right? Decided to pick the wrong side of the battle, in verse 6, it says, the woman was convinced, meaning that Satan came, presented an argument, you know, slipped in there and was like, eh, what do you think, you know? And she was like, that's, yeah, I mean, that sounds okay. That sounds real. That sounds reasonable. And so she went ahead and did that instead of following loyally God's direction. And as a response to that, there was a whole lot of consequence, bad consequence, that came with that. God dished consequence to the first offender, Satan, and then man. And man, as a result, was kicked out and made to work hard for food, right? And that just started a whole chain of situations that, that came on down the line. But that's what we see from the beginning is Satan stepping in at the origin of conflict where man and God were good, 
but man was convinced to not submit to God anymore, to follow his own path and borrow some ideas from another tricky person. So then we come to the next deal, right? Cain and Abel, where it's more of a, less of a God and man kind of thing and more of a man and man kind of thing, more of a person-on-person conflict. So that's where we read Genesis chapter 4. I better drink some water before this one. That was 12 verses. Okay. Now Adam, in chapter 4, verse 1, Now Adam had sexual relations with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant. When she gave birth to Cain, she said, With the Lord's help, I have produced a man. Later she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd while Cain cultivated the ground. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what's right, but if you refuse to do what's right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you, submit, you must subdue it and be its master. So just to reverse there for a second, what was the difference between the two of them? It was Abel that gave the best, right? The best of his firstborn lambs from his flock. But Cain just gave some of his uh, produce, right? And it wasn't the best. It wasn't what God wanted for him. It wasn't in the right spirit, and God called him out on that. And instead of being humble and submissive and accepting correction and doing what God wanted, right, he decided to um, have a reaction to that and hold that in his heart, hold that against God. So, one day... Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, where is your brother? Where is Abel? I don't know, Cain responded. Am I my brother's guardian? But the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are cursed and banished from the ground which has swallowed your brother's blood. No longer will the ground yield good crops for you, no matter how hard you work. From now on, you will be a homeless wanderer on the earth. So that's round two. That's the second evolutionary step of conflict, right? It's stemming, as you saw, it's stemming from a perceived separation from God, right, with Cain. Cain had a conflict with God and moved away from God in his heart. He was not submissive to God in his direction. He allowed room for something else to creep in. He allowed room for Satan to creep in as he was waiting, crouching at his door. Yeah, there was a difference between Cain and his brother. Um, In verse 7, says, you will be accepted if you do what's right, but if you refuse to do what's right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. 
Cain was warned and given direction to move back to God and close that gap, to be reconciled, right? It was not that big of a deal. He just didn't do the right thing. Like, he could have made that right, but he refused to do that. He refused to reconcile with God and do what was right, and everything would have been good. But he didn't want to do that. Um, instead, he had a reaction. He said, I don't know where my brother is, you know, and my brother's guardian. It's like, but he killed him as a result of that. There was, you can fill in the, the blanks there of what was going on in his mind and in his heart. He had a lot of bitterness and jealousy and envy and resentment and like all of those things. And that's what we want to try to start identifying here is what does this stuff look like? What does this look like in our lives when we have conflict move in that creates this separation that is going to ultimately lead to something bad and even worse? God gives us an opportunity to be reconciled back to him, to repair those things with each other, to repair things with him, but we have a choice to make still. And what we see here is a bad choice being made, a very, very bad choice. And again, it has major consequences. So we see God as being polarizing, right? It's either God is a strong person, God is a strong personality, and you either have to love him or hate him. You know, you either have to follow him or push away from him. It doesn't really work somewhere in the middle. Um, things are very unstable on that middle ground. And that's what we see here, is Cain was not willing to go to one side, and so he was pushed all the way to the other side. And it, because of that, it triggered a reaction from him. It triggered a reaction from him from the side of this conflict that doesn't demand things like goodness or fruit of the Spirit, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Doesn't demand those things. Definitely doesn't demand self-control, you know. In fact, it approves of being reckless in those things. And so, Cain went to that side, which didn't require those things of him, gave him the freedom to operate outside of God's economy, and it didn't work out for him. He had a reaction, and there was a major consequence to that. Um, but, because of those things, because of those emotions and those tendencies that, are, that come along with that, it's sort of like a reflex. It's hard to control. And because of that, we have sort of a one-up on it, right? It's a symptom of a sickness almost. It's like when you get a sickness, when you get some sort of disease like that, you can't control really what it looks like. You can try to, you know, take a shower in the morning or whatever, but when somebody's sick, you can tell that they're sick, you know? It's something on their face. It just doesn't work out. And that's what we see in this type of conflict, this fingerprint of it, this signature of this um, deception from Satan, that, they, that if somebody's being influenced by that, they can't hide what it really looks like as it comes out. So we see Cain and Abel having this, yeah, conflict. Cain approached it from an ungodly perspective, and it led him down a, a bad part. So we want to try to identify those indicators, those red flags, those um, sprouts of conflict sprouts from those seeds that are planted by the deception of Satan that we see in the beginning that are filtered down. 
So we want to take, take note of that. There are several places um, in Scripture that tell us what these things look like, that different disciples and apostles tell us what that looks like. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33, we see that God is not a God of disorder, but a God of peace. He's not a God of disorder, not a God of confusion in other translations. It doesn't look like that. Whenever there's conflict that's being addressed from a godly perspective, whenever there's a conflict being spurred from someone, it's going to have a signature of disorder or confusion to it when it comes from an evil place. Um, especially when you're talking about what they were talking about in 1 Corinthians 14, which is where they're addressing the church. They're addressing a complex group of people with a bunch of gifts that they're trying to coordinate in a productive way, right? There's all sorts of opportunities there for disorder and confusion if people are following their own desires or following the deception of evil. Does that make sense? Like, it's easy to have disorder and confusion, but when it's from God, it doesn't look like that. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, we see Paul saying, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. And specifically, this passage is about working for the Lord. It's not like you can't be afraid of spiders or something like that. But it's when you're repping God, there's no fear. There's no being timid about that. That's what it is. But if you are under the guise of doing something good, but really it's not coming from a good place, or you see somebody else doing that, there's going to be a fear or timidity to it in terms of repping who God is, you know, authoritatively. So it looks like, you know, not being Im um, afraid or embarrassed about repping God, but owning his character and being submissive with our character before who God is and who God wants us to be. Uh, now we're going to turn to James chapter 3. I think I got my little marker here. James chapter 3. I think we're in, yeah, verse 13. So this is some more stuff here. This is a good list. If you are wise... Did I say verse 13? Yeah, 313 through 17, I think. If you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you're bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder of every kind of evil. But the wisdom from above, first of all, is pure. It's also peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It's full of mercy and good deeds, and it shows no favoritism and is always sincere. So we see a good, a good list there. But a few key ones in there are bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, and covering up the truth with boasting and lying. So these things are a wisdom that comes from a place of evil, from Satan, from demonic wisdom. That's what we hear from James. James the Just. Cool name. Sounds authoritative, because he is. 
So those things are all big fat indicators. And if you go back and you look right at the original conflict there, where this this um, separation from God birthed a conflict between people that resulted in a murder, you know, in these in these intense feelings that caused somebody to kill their brother. That's what you see. You see bitter jealousy and you see selfish ambition going on. He couldn't deal with those things. He had to, he had to absolve that conflict somewhere. And either he could have repented to God and returned and reconciled to God, or he had to get rid of his conflict, which was with his brother there. And he decided to go with demonic wisdom on that. He decided to go with the path of deception. And that doesn't work out. You can't deceive God, and he paid for it. So we also see favoritism and insincerity in there in terms of stuff when we're, when we're talking about things. Um, God values everybody, right? We see that across Scripture, that both the poor and the rich are equal in the sight of God. And that's what we see in that last deal about favoritism and being sincere. God doesn't play favorites. God doesn't accept insincere things. So... When you have somebody that's being deceptive, that's being insincere, that's pay- playing favorites for their own benefit or whatever it is to, to put off an image that isn't real, that's something that is not from God. Both of those things, favoritism and insincerity, devalue people, and it pushes you away from people and pushes you away from God. We're going to move on to James chapter 4 just around the corner here, verse 1 through 5. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and you kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war and take it away from them. Yet, you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you do ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. What do you think the scriptures mean when they say that the Spirit of God has placed within us, that the Spirit of God has placed within us is filled with envy? Okay, I'm confusing myself here. What do you think the scriptures mean when they say that the Spirit of God has placed within us a spirit of envy, is filled with envy? It's filled with envy. Okay. So, yeah, what do you think the scriptures mean when they say that the Spirit God has placed within us is filled with envy? Yeah. So, that's what we got going on. That same pattern, envy, jealousy, selfish ambition, all of those things. Um, in this, we see that God has left the world to its evil desires and its evil master, right? It's, God has his own plan to reconcile everything. But for the time being, when people want to turn away from him, he lets them do that. He lets them do that and get those consequences from that. And hopefully they'll come back to him, but that doesn't always happen. Regardless, we need to be able to figure out when that's happening and when it's not. And understand that these conflicts, as outlined in scripture after scripture after scripture, aren't just 
people having a bad day necessarily, that they come from a place that is more than that, that they are spiritual in nature from the beginning, but they are twisted to us, that we get confused about those things, that over time the connection has become weaker and weaker, that spiritual and physical are not connected to each other. But we need to understand that they are, and we can see that from the very beginning, and we can see where those things started to move away from each other, where, you know, people are pe having conflicts with people, but it's because they're separated from God that those conflicts happen, that those conflicts are open to that personality that isn't from God. It's a quick downward spiral, as we see in Cain and Abel, um, after you turn away from God, that those conflicts start appearing with that certain personality. So we should turn about uh, to Romans 1, where we see man's rebellion against man uh, because of these things. Well, first we see it on a different way. So Romans 1, verse 18. Okay, 118 through 27 to start. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Notice the language in here. <clears throat> who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. Just like Cain and Abel in the beginning, they knew God. They knew God face to face. And so Paul says in Romans that we also have no excuse. Yet, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. And as a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created, instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. And that is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. So, man, from the beginning, as we've seen, is in a rebellion against God. He's suppressing that truth. He's suppressing that relationship, even when it's right in front of them. And things are flipped around, right? Instead of the way that Romans puts it there, the people are worshiping the creation instead of the creator. Another way to put that is, they're flipping things. They're not focused on spiritual first, but instead physical first. That these things are flipped around in the opposite order that they're supposed to be. 
and they've turned away from God, and there's a quick downward spiral. And you notice that it says that it's not that God is giving them a direct consequence here. He says that God didn't have to give them a direct consequence, but they suffered the penalty for those things within themselves, with the disorder and the selfish ambition and the jealousy that that perpetuated in their lives and those things, in those conflicts that inevitably come up. And so we continue in verse 28 through 32. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. And worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. So we see that not only is there a separation from God and a refusal to submit to that, to their created order of things, but that in that separation from God, once again, we see a consistency in the story that people turn against each other as a result of these things, as a result of not following the direction that God gives, as a result of following the quote-unquote wisdom that they've been given or tricked with or whatever when they left room for somebody else, Satan, to creep into that and influence them. So notice that this conflict isn't evil and man versus God. It's not God against man and evil who are on a team together now. But it's actually evil versus God and evil versus man. Like this evil, this Satan, this demonic influence that's happening, it's not good for anybody, right? It's not that there's this team going on here. It's that people are tricked into following this evil situation as if it's for their own good, as if pursuing self is actually good for yourself. But we see that it's not. We see that it's not. Evil teaches to follow and glorify self at others' expense. But that always comes around. That leads to all these things, hating and murdering and being merciless and heartless to one another and all these things, things that no one wants. The fruit of Satan's wisdom turns man on ourselves is the reality of the situation, is the reality, the spiritual reality of what we see here. All of those things are destructive. And so, yeah, we see this seed of rebellion and what sprouts from that. Um, and we have to understand that it's consistently looking to be watered by Satan, watered by this demonic influence, watered by these uh, things that are trying to perpetuate us to live in this way that is in rebellion against God. And so in that, we should recognize the leader of that rebellion, right? We should recognize Satan and understand who he is and maybe... You know, we don't have a lot of heaven and hell going around in the culture anymore in any sort of, like, you know, 1950s, like, hellfire and brimstone, like, situation going on. And things get, things get, you know, muddy, and there's all sorts of, like, mythos with that. There's even a show called Lucifer Out where he's, like, you know, trying to have justice on things and, and be a person and understand he's, like, personified or whatever. But the reality of it is that he's not a person, right? He's an angel. He has a different... Uh, nature than we do 
and it's not really possible to understand him on the level of another human being. So we need to be careful of that. We need to understand that he's a certain enemy that is not like us. You know, he'll try to convince us of things or whatever, but we're not on the same level. He doesn't understand. He doesn't comprehend who God really is and what that does for us. So anyway, just looking at a quick, you know, Lucifer bio, like some of the things he's known by is Morning Star, one of his more glorious, like, good names because he was an angel, you know. He's also known as the devil or the dragon or the serpent or god of this world. Or then you start getting into the character-oriented things. You know, he's called the father of lies, the accuser, the tempter, the adversary. Like, all of those things are accurate descriptions of who he is and what um, the things are doing that he intends to do. You know, what he intends to do. Notice that none of these, however, indicate power or authority over us in any way, shape, or form, right? He is an angel. He is a fallen angel, and that is a sad place for him to be. Um, he wanted to be like God, but he rebelled, right? And he fell from that. He convinced a third of the angels to follow him, but they lost that fight, and they were cast out of heaven. So he's now the spiritual father of ungodly beings and ungodly people on earth, and God has assigned to him a future of consequence. We need to think about that. You never want to follow somebody, you know, into jail or whatever, and that's exactly what's going on here. He, from his role there, encourages us and deceives us to follow his path. But, like we said, his path is a real sad path to follow. He started glorious, a morning star, and then he went to all those degraded options of a fallen angel and the accuser and the father of lies and like all of these things. And we can even see him, you know, the evidence speaks for itself in the beginning where he's taking something that was said and spinning it. Not our friend, um, but also not a crazy power that is, you know, incomprehensible or like mystical and like all this stuff. Like we know who he is and in that we can have power in our understanding there and be able to combat him. So let's take another, let's take a look at Ezekiel uh, chapter 28 for some of the situation that, that God is um, talking to Satan. Ezekiel 28, 14 through 18. I ordained and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. You had access to the holy mountain of God and walked among the stones of fire. You were blameless in all you did from the day you were created until the day evil was found in you. Your rich commerce led you to violence and you sinned. So I banished you in disgrace from the mountain of God. I expelled you, O mighty guardian, from your place among the stones of fire. Your heart was filled with pride because of all your beauty. Your wisdom was corrupted by your love of splendor. So I threw you to the ground and exposed you to the curious gaze of kings. You defiled your sanctuaries with your many sins and your dishonest trade. So I brought fire out from within you, and it consumed you. I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who were watching. 
that's a that's a little bio of talking to who's it in this one the king of Babylon I believe oh Tyre king of Tyre this is a person that was doing evil and that Satan was influencing that God was speaking in this whole passage here and more but God was speaking both to the king of Tyre and to Satan directly, who is influencing that situation, who is giving him demonic wisdom that he was operating out of and doing evil and oppressing Israel. Um, but we see even in that situation that the actions of himself, the actions of Satan, <clears throat> brought out a fire from within him that consumed him, that destroyed him. And that's what we see from the fruit of all this stuff. So, just to anchor that in, we don't, need to, we don't need to irrationally fear Satan because he's a spiritual being or what he's doing, but we need to fear God in that if we follow the deception that comes from that wisdom, we have a lot to fear. Not only just from God, and we do have something to fear from God for sure, but we have something to fear from the natural consequences of life that it will consume us, that will put us around people that when pushed comes to shove, they will consume us too. So we don't want none of that. Uh, let's go to John chapter 8, verse 42 through 45. We see Jesus speaking here about this subject of somebody being influenced by this. Jesus told them, if God were your father, you would love me. This is the Pharisees, I believe. He was telling the Pharisees, if God were your father, you would love me because I have come to you from God. I am not here on my own, but he sent me. Why can't you understand what I'm saying? It's because you can't even hear me. For you are the children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So when I tell you the truth, you just naturally don't believe me. We see these people that were supposed to be godly people, right? But God himself accuses them of being, of acting and living in the spirit of demonic wisdom and the father of lies, having that signature in their character. And so we can't take for granted that just because somebody, you know, has the title of whatever or labels themselves a Christian, you know, that they don't, that they're not susceptible to these influences, Right? And Christ is holding them accountable for this and warning them. Have you ever had somebody try to manipulate and deceive you for their own agenda? Like a real person, obviously. It's not very cool. It's offensive and it's, yeah, offensive and insulting. It makes you feel like maybe you're they view you as dumb or that you are dumb or whatever, that they're trying to take advantage of you. You know, you get all these emotions in there um, that are not good toward them and are completely reasonable to have. And what I would encourage you to do is to look at your life not in 
this is spiritual and this is physical, you know, but as a combined situation where you understand that those two things are intricately connected to each other and develop a distaste for this type of thing and understand that there's a third person out there in a conflict, you know, between you and another person or you and God. There's a third voice going on there that's attempting to deceive you, that's attempting to slip into the cracks, that they're trying to manipulate and deceive you for their own agenda, which has nothing to do with your own benefit, regardless of what it claims. Develop your distaste and your passion for refusing that, you know? We see movies and stuff over and over again and heroes that stand up in rebellion against an injustice and against bad people and, and so on and so forth, and we're like, yeah, get them, you know? But we don't, we don't understand that this type of thing happens to us all the time, that there are forces attempting to deceive us, attempting to convince us to take care of ourself, to have selfish ambition, to, you know, want the good things that other people have because we don't have them, you know? This is America, like land of the home of the brave and the free and the good stuff and the boats and the whatever, you know, and the castles. We don't have castles, but everybody thinks they, you know, have a castle for some reason. Um, so develop your distaste and your passion for this. Develop your sensitivity to the personality of this. Understand that the person that's trying to deceive you into this is a f not just a fallen angel, you know, that phrase fallen angel, but a failed angel, you know? He had a position of glory and honor, and he chose to sacrifice that because he wanted what he thought was more and continues to do that in his jealousy and bitterness and all of those things. We have to be aware. The way that this deception works oftentimes is that he finds a crack, right? He finds a crack where we have some of those feelings going on already. We have some of that jealousy and selfish ambition going on, those um, complex emotions, you know, where... Maybe we've been hurt. Maybe, maybe we are having a bad day or whatever it is. Maybe, you know, somebody that we love died and we feel weak and we feel, you know, triggered by this and that and we can't handle it, you know. But all of those things are cracks. And when we have a crack, we have to understand that Satan doesn't care. He doesn't have mercy. He's heartless, right? And his people are that way too. The people that follow him whether they know it or not, are that way. And they will be used against us to make us be like them. Like it said in Romans, not only are these people, you know, this terrible, have this terrible signature of personality or whatever that, that follow Satan, but that follow the wisdom of the world maybe is a more approachable way to put it. But they also encourage other people to do the same. It's a thing. And nobody's invulnerable from that. Everyone is vulnerable. Even one of, one of God's favorite people, right? King David of Israel, one of God's most loved people. Even him, even he was susceptible to this influence. Um, I'm trying to think of the scripture of it, but I think it's in Chronicles 
First Chronicles 21, I want to say. Um, he's explaining uh, another situation, not the Bathsheba thing, but he ordered a census for all Israel. And God has very strict requirements for that. God has very strict requirements for when, you're, when he's going to um, count everybody and take an account of stuff in the law of Moses, right? The law that the nation of Israel was given. And David decided that he was going to ignore that and order a census anyway and disturb that and didn't, didn't have God's permission in doing that, which he was supposed to. He was supposed to be directed by God to have a census. And B, didn't offer the appropriate sacrifices for doing that. And what he says in that is, Satan, I can't remember exactly the words of it, but essentially that Satan was in that, and he convinced me to do this, and I have sinned against the Lord. Even he, who is a man after God's own heart, had room in his heart, had a crack in there somewhere where he was tempted to do something that he wasn't supposed to, and Israel paid a severe consequence for that. So, let's move on from that. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, just to wrap it up. Verse 3, For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound teaching and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths but you should, keep a you should keep a clear mind in every situation. We see that all the time, right? Not only do people chase after teachers that tell them what they want to hear, they just make up what they want to hear. You know, they don't even need a teacher. But what I would submit to you is to consider the perspective that you don't see a teacher happening there, but there is a teacher present. And that teacher also wants to recruit you not for your benefit, but for his. Just spell it out, that teacher is Satan, the devil, the accuser, the tempter, like all those things, just to be clear. So, we need to keep a clear mind in every situation. Be looking for those fingerprints of jealousy and selfish ambition and all of those things where the person is at the center of things instead of God. Let's read Romans chapter 7, verse 14. I said wrapping up, but psych. Romans chapter 7, 14 through 25. So the trouble is not with the law. It is, it is for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am not, for I am all too human a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I do, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But I know that what I am doing is wrong, but if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree with the law, and I know that it's good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I want to do what is wrong. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing it. It is sin living in me that does it. 
I've discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what's right, I inevitably do what's wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that's dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's another one from Paul. And you see this exact sentiment uh, being said, you know, relatively poetically even, but in a practical sense. Now keep in mind that Paul is not some you know, schmuck off the road that's like had a, a life of, you know, alcohol abuse and, and like, you know, a bad, like growing up in the slums and like all this stuff, you know. He's a trained religious leader and he's super hardcore. And even after his conversion, when he's writing this, you know, years and years after he's been a Christian and been serving God faithfully and effectively going across the known world and preaching the good news of Christ, he still comes to the conclusion that he has this other thing inside of him that is at war with his mind, with who God created him to be. But yet, he's saved and reconciled through Christ. So, Take courage in that. Take empathy from a person that is probably better than you and has the same struggles. Definitely better than me. Um, and he's born for battle and victorious in that, yet still has those things. Now, what weight do you give to your struggle with this force? Do you consider yourself, you know, relatively free from this assault? of this deception that's trying to seep into your life? Do you understand where it's coming in and how to identify that and what to do about that in any sort of seriousness? Or at least how to identify it so that you can talk to somebody about what to do about it. Sin is crouching at our door, waiting for us to separate from God just a little bit, waiting to exploit and take advantage of that situation. Satan even tries when there aren't any cracks, right? Like Jesus, for example. He came and tempted Jesus. Jesus didn't have any cracks. He was a fully righteous man. So, take comfort in our victory in Christ, but be vigilant. Be vigilant in our submission to him and watching out for those wolves in sheep's clothing that try to convince us that work for people that we may not be aware of. Subdue sin like God asked of Cain at the beginning. Subdue sin and be its master. And we have Jesus Christ to do that through. All right, some questions for discussion. Where do you have cracks in your relationship with God? What wedges are being driven into those cracks? Do you see that happening? Are you aware of that possibility? We all have weaknesses in our, you know, own personhood and maybe even situationally in our life, you know, things that are happening right now. What cracks are appearing in your life right now or have always been there that have been tough to mend, you know? 
what wedges are being driven in in your family, in your relationships? And where do you let your guard down? You know, many people have a hard spot and a soft spot. Both of those things can be weaknesses, but where is your soft spot in terms of letting deception and letting this skewed truth in? Where do you let your guard down? How have you seen the signature of Satan in your life or in the lives of others? It's always easy to, to look at other people, you know, and be like, oh yeah, I see this going on here and this and that. But how do you look at other people's lives and be like, that's what it looks like for other people, and then look back at yourself, you know? Back at yourself when you have that tangible example. Have you seen that signature of deception and deceit in your life? Let's see, where is this deal? I'd have to deal. <clears throat> but anyway, yeah. Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, and then all of those things like, you know, quarreling and hate and uh, deceit and, yeah, that whole list from James. We can look it up again. So, let's discuss. <clears throat> 